I believe that graffiti engages you with other people, other cultures, especially now. I get invited to go all over the world on my terms, with my language, with my graffiti. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. The world has dramatically changed in the six weeks since we recorded this episode at Art Center's Bruce Haven Media Production Center. Today, I'm speaking to you from my home office, adapting and responding to our new reality, along with the rest of the college that migrated to an online learning environment on March 23rd. I've been truly awed by the grit and creativity with which our community has responded to this crisis, turning enormous challenges into opportunities and reinventing the classroom experience. This episode of Change Lab happens to be the last one of the season and will resume again as usual in the fall. And although it wasn't planned this way, it's hard to think of an interview more timely or better suited to demonstrating the strength of the creative spirit to transcend expectations, assumptions, and challenges than this one with Chaz Bohorkis, the godfather of graffiti. There are few art world honors as coveted as having a piece of work included in the Smithsonian's permanent collection. Likewise, in the pop culture universe, not many artists can claim to have their own special edition line of Converse Chuck Taylor sneakers. Chaz can claim both of these achievements and more. A native of East Los Angeles, Chaz visited Art Center last fall to deliver a talk about the role of graffiti in creating cultural unity, and I was taken by the power of his wisdom and his work. In fact, we were also impressed with his accomplishments that we decided to award him an honorary doctorate degree at our spring commencement ceremony, which was sadly postponed due to the COVID-19 crisis. But we did have the opportunity to sit down together in early February to reflect on his remarkable career that blurs the boundaries between high art and street art, calligraphy and graffiti, popular and alternative culture. Please enjoy my conversation with Chaz Bohorkis. Welcome. Thank you. So I, I um, do really want to address your life in Los Angeles and, and Highland Park. But before we do, I'm interested in going back to a very young version of Chaz, which I understand would have been Charles at the time. Is that right? It would have been Charlie. Would have been Charlie at the time. Right? <laughs> yeah. And to ask about who that Charlie was and how his creative expression came through. And then we can find our way into Highland mm -hmm. Park and to some of your background. Yeah. Charlie was a kind of a uh, introverted, very quiet, very shy, extremely shy person. But I always knew I wanted to be an artist. Even when I was, you know, maybe five, six years old, mm -hmm. I was already drawing. I believe that artists are born, but I never knew exactly what kind of artist. And, you know, when you're that young, you don't know what an artist is. You don't know what it takes, what you have to do, how do you get traction, how do you buy a home? How do you buy a car? You know, how do you have to make a life with art? That was a mystery. And how did you imagine it as this young child, knowing you wanted to be an artist? What did that mean to Charlie? You know, is, is to be an artist at that age, you might as well be a movie star. You had that high ideals, but didn't have a clue how to get there. My mother took me to the Pasadena Asian Museum. 
And we're talking about 1963, right around there. 63, 64. And uh, really young, like I said, very shy. And I took sculpture classes there. But in the galleries, after every class, every, I think once a week I would go there, I would go visit the galleries and see all these modern, incredible painters. I saw Andy Warhol's first show was not in New York, was here mm. in the Pasadena Pacific Asian Museum. And I saw his soup cans, his soup can paintings, his Brillo boxes, and I was able to touch them, see what they were made out of. And at that age, I'd seen them in art magazines, and I go, wow, this is the real thing. One day I walked into the gallery and there's a urinal, a stool with a wheel on top of it, a painting of a woman descending a staircase with flashing, segmented, you know, looks like in slow motion. And I said that, I go, Marcel Duchamp. And then I asked the teacher and she said, oh yeah, he's visiting here. And I asked him, could you please introduce me? And that took so much nerve because I wanted to meet him. I wanted to meet a real artist. And, and he was so kind. We sat down for a moment, and I asked him, how do you become a real artist? You, know? you asked Duchamp this. Yeah, well, <laughs> Duchamp. That's great. You know, I just got it what out of me. What was his answer? He said, you just do it. Uh-huh. That gave me the guns. That put the bullets. <laughs> gave me, you know. Mm-hmm. When I was about uh, 16, 17 years old, I got a scholarship for ceramics at Chenard, you know. And I was lost. I was very, for the first couple of years, I was very, very quiet because I didn't feel that I fit. For one, I was Latino. And I would, the museums and the shows I would see, it was all American art. There's not much, much distinction, but when you're that young and being raised Mexican-American with all these issues and segregation and there was, you know, certain jobs you could have, your parents and that, there was always a conversation in the home about you'll never be this. You are going to be a Mexican-American and you better train to be that, you know, um, tradesman like that. My father told me, coming home late one night, he says, "Eh, artists are a dime a dozen. But in my heart, I knew when I got older, I wanted to be a famous artist. And that's what I always kept in my back pocket. But it still took me another 20 years to figure out what to do with it. And in your world, there were other kinds of influences operating at the same time, the L.A. world and the Highland Park world. I learned from reading about you, I didn't know this term called sewer sliding. (laughs) And I wonder if you could tell us that story a little bit, because that's a discovery of art. That's a discovery of creativity, right? Your sewer sliding days? My sewer sliding days. So we would go down (laughs) to the uh, Arroyo Seco River, a branch of the Los Angeles River. And here in Los Angeles, everything's concrete. And then out of the sides are all these... um, street drainage for the for the rain. That we call them the sewers. And they're probably about four and a half feet high or maybe four feet high, just big enough for a 10-year-old to get back in there. We used to walk back in there for about a mile and then find these slopes all in there. There was always be a little drainage of water always dripping throughout the whole year, little green slime throughout, and a lot of frogs in there too, but totally pitch 
black, dark. And we put three pairs of pants on and then take a good run and then just slide in the water and just, it'd be so slippery and you would just spin and spin in the total darkness. Wow. And we thought that was so much fun. It sounds fun. It sounds but crazy, but it sounds It fun. was crazy. And yeah, of course, we stunk like hell. I mean, we stunk like frogs, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But in there, back in those depths, I guess they were like the uh, caves in Spain or something. We find we started seeing the hieroglyphics, the imagery, the writings, the leftovers. We had candles, and as you went down further into the darkness, you would see people's names, and they were written also with candles, with the smoke, or those times Zippo lighters, kerosene, on this concrete, on the ceiling. Uh -huh. You take and you would kind of like yeah, puffy right, right, smoke, right. and the soot would write letters. So we would see these names, and I would wonder. I go, I knew why they were writing here. They're taggers. But who were they? I wanted to know who they were. Because there was Anglo names there, and also some Latino names. But the oldest ones from the 30s and the 40s were all Anglo names. And then later on, it was uh, Fernando, Joaquin, you know, Louis. There was all more Latino names, and the letter styles changed from, from the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And I noticed that change, and I found it fascinating. So there was years of this going on, right? Yes, decades. Decades of this going on. Decades. Since then, I've met important anthropologists. We've gone down there to the rivers and investigated, and we found uh, tags down to 1914, mostly hobos at that time. And they were using all capital letters, but Western, serifed, top and bottom. Or later on, the gang style, it was all capital letters, but sans serif. No serifs. It was a different style. It was more Helvetica, you know. Every decade had a different letter styles. And mostly Latinos, we always used capital letters because we were doing a formal presentation, taking ourselves serious. Names and letters always line up. We would reference in the um, Old English of the LA Times title, the Constitution of the United States, our birth and death certificates, graduation certificates. All those were prestigious letters. Old English and always lined up. Mm -hmm. That's how we took the, the Latino graffiti. The earlier ones, the Anglo names, they would use a, uh, a script, uh, upper and lowers. And it was more personal for them. Where we were making a signage, a statement, things like, this is our territory, don't not enter. We would write on the boundaries. Mm. And then we're in New York style. They would write all on the subways. It would be all city. They would write all about themselves, going mm -hmm. all city. So it was more personal for us. It was about the gang, the group, about we, the list of the roll call. I enjoyed that. That made more sense to me. I tagged from 1969 to 1979 for 10 years. In 1980, I did my very first painting. I was a painter all along. I had gone to Chouinard and uh, take ceramics, and I was doing some funky little paintings. But I never did a graffiti painting because for those 10 years, I never thought that graffiti was art. Mm. I was going to Chouinard during the day, doing ceramics and painting models and drawing and all that, listening to lectures, and at night, I would go out and tag, not associating the two together took 10 years to even tell myself that graffiti 
is an art form. Its basic foundations deal with art. You know, the shapes, the letters. What was coming in, conceptualism, was a new form of art. And this was another way of conceptualizing exactly what I was doing and trying to make a formal language. I was using this street language as my own alphabet. Then I took about five, 10 years to study it. I wanted to learn cholo graffiti grammar. <laughs> you know? right. I wanted to learn punctuation. All post Chenard. Is this, this comes afterwards. It all came during the, uh, yes. I, I quit, I left school. Sorry to interrupt because I do very much want to know the story, but can you explain what Chenard is? I don't know if, if our listeners know, even know what that school is. And what year did you start? Chenard was uh, one of the first uh, fine art schools in Los Angeles. It was Chenard and Art Center. And when I graduated from high school in 67, friends of mine went to Art Center. They wore a suit and tie. They're the ones who were going to get a job. They were the designers. I wanted to be the painter. I was the hippie. I wanted to be free and paint and do whatever I wanted. And I wanted to travel. And so I went to Chenard. And they were very close. They were both downtown. Chenard Art Institute was by uh, Nelbert Chenard, an artist from the 30s. And also was influential to train a lot of the artists that went, became uh, known for working for Walt Disney. So it was known as the Disney School, even though we never drew characters or anything. It was a serious school. And it eventually closed, right? It doesn't exist today, but it kind of morphed into Cal Arts, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, right? it's, I was there from 67. I'd gotten a scholarship for ceramics, and then around 71, it closed. They decided to become a finer art school. They changed their name to Cal Arts. Cal Arts, yeah. Chaz, you're such an original, but I'm kind of fascinated by when you finally did get out to Chenard, when you finally started understanding that there was an art world out there, who your models became, who they were. Were they mural artists? I know you learned Asian calligraphy at one point. You had a teacher. So I'm just interested in, in some of the influences beyond Chenard, which was clearly important in terms of the discipline of drawing, but how these influences began to inform your sensibility. Well, I was looking for models, and I couldn't find any. The only graffiti on the West Coast was gangsters. And I had been in uh, jail for a couple of times for small, small things. And I noticed that gangsters don't paint. There's no color in prison or in jails or anything like that. And after a couple of times, I just told myself, I'm never, ever going to come back here again. I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be a gangster. I'm never going to commit a crime. I don't double park anymore. I don't do anything for decades now because I wanted to be part of society. And also, I wanted to really create. I felt that there was still so much in me, but I didn't know how to get it out. But at that time, you know, I'm 18, 19, very confused. You, know, you have to realize Nixon was in the White House. We had just landed on the moon. Jagger Hoover was the, you know, FBI. Uh, there was still a lot of racism. It was still, Vietnam was kind of going on. All my friends were, were going to the war. And what, am I supposed to do tagging and graffiti with all that? It wasn't important. Everybody thought that tagging was uh, gutter art. Actually, that was told that it's, that's gutter art. That's street art. That's a dog just marking its territory. That'll never be art. So I was really confused, exactly. But in my heart, I knew that it was a language that I wanted to um, 
discover, but also to use as a tool and to create my own language out of it. You know, So there was models of other people doing that. No, there wasn't anybody. So I went to the Chicanos. The Chicano movement was going on. And I met many of the muralists. And when I went to my own culture of Chicanos and showed them my, my very first graffiti painting in 1980, I did a roll call. Just rows of letters of all the names of my friends, my gang, my crew, my posse, which basically is your is everybody who influences you. You know, you could say it's your telephone book. So I did my very first painting with nothing but words all the way across it, bleeding off on all the edges. So it'd be half names on all, on tops and bottom because it was a bigger list. And I would take that over there to the, to the Chicano gallery, to the muralist, and they'd say, that's not art. And i go, but you are artists. You ought to get me. And they're the ones who told me, graffiti, that's anti-Chicano. It's... Mm. It's against uh, Chicano artists, says our Chavez, migration, repression, family issues, religion, cars, you know, lowrider cars, this, that, graffiti. We don't want that. He said, that's bad boy. And they'll undermine everything that we're trying to do. And then I showed it to a couple of galleries in um, Hollywood, and they said, no, they, they didn't appreciate, they didn't understand it, didn't appreciate it, didn't see anywhere it was going, let alone try to sell it have a dialogue with it, they didn't see anything mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. Until I ended up in Hollywood at the Rock and Roll Gallery, Zero One Gallery, run by notorious um, John Polkdown. And I met Robert Williams, the underground cartoonist. At that time, there was underground cartoons and I was buying them and I was reading them and I thought they were cool, Zap Comics. So I met the father of both. They embraced me, not Latinos. These two crazies embraced me. They were much older than I was. They go, Chaz, we like your work. We don't know what it means, but it's bad boy. So you could come and show with us. And that was the beginning of... And they recognized the spirit of it. Yeah, the, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Later on, about another 10, 15 years, a lot of these young men, a lot of them were dying. Car accidents, alcoholism, drugs, and all that. And I remember at one wake that we had there at the gallery, we were all kind of crying. We said, nobody likes graffiti. Nobody likes cartoons. <laughs> what are we going to do? I said, well, let's do what the Chicanos do. We self-validate. You know, they became their own Chicano professors, Chicano studies. They had to create their ambience. They had to create their own world to validate themselves. I go, that's what we should do. So we started Juxtapose Magazine. So that's the way we started. Let's learn a little bit about graffiti because I have to say it has a rich and compelling history that really caught my imagination. And I thought I would just ask you to maybe give us and the listeners a, a little primer on the history of graffiti. I mean, I was interested to hear what you just said about the tunnels and you could almost trace a certain kind of history of early graffiti there. But also fascinating to read that shoeshine folks used to mark their territory with Shoe polish, I guess, right? That was another material used to tag certain areas and, and mark territory for where they were. In my learning about graffiti, my education of graffiti, you know, I have to say is my dad 
taught me that. That's one thing I give him credit. He was a shoeshine boy and in Tijuana and in Overa Street. And to protect their spot, they used to get their dabbers and write, tag their name on the wall to protect their spot. And by the way, in any particular kind of letter form or was it? I don't uh, know. You don't know. Probably uh-huh. not. Uh-huh. Probably just a written in a script. So we're talking about the 1930s, right around that time. And then during the 50s, when I was real young, we used to go down and spend the summers with my grandparents in Tijuana. And there, every taxi, every bus, every storefront was, the letters were all handwritten. And they were old English, all capital letters, you know that. Uh, the prices of the fare when you get on the bus, everything was all script, all written out, you know, it was all uh, letters, you know, typed out. And I admired that. And then something else was also going on. Their political parties are two parties, the PRI and the PAN, PRI and the PAN. So I would see all these kind of guerrilla stencils being done in the corners when they would have the, um, the campaigning. And it would be a one or a two color, the PRI, and maybe with three, you know, two colors or three colors with the red, green, and the white, like the Mexican flag. You know, and or they just hit it all black or the all red. The bond hit the corners with a little gorilla stencil in a spray can. And uh, actually, no, they must have used a brush because the spray can came in around the mid fifties or so, and it was usually used for model airplanes and all that. But those stencils, those gorilla stencils, gave me the idea about how to hit it, hit fast, get in and get out. So those are little ideas in my head. When I started tagging in the street, first tag was probably in um, 68. I was probably 19 years old. And I started to draw instead of writing letters. And I couldn't do it very well. No can control. My finger would cramp up. And then those spray cans, bad pigment, uh, low pressure, and they would just dribble and it would just spit. So it it was terrible. So I, I went to the brush or I remembered that stencil. I said, let me draw it out. Let me draw what I want to do. I was living by myself. I didn't have that much money. So I saved the, the Christmas wrappings of the presents. And because all the paper was white on the back, and I scotch taped all this Christmas wrappings all together and made a big sheet of paper, which was impossible to get. I couldn't afford a big sheet of paper. And I'm talking about five feet by four and a half feet wide. I drew out my skull. I said, who am I? I'm Chicano, okay, Dia de los Muertos, Day of the Dead. I like the skull. I like horror movies. It was Dr. Sardonicus, a big smiling skull. I go, I'll put a big nasty smile on him. We're always clowning around. My skull has little lines above the eyes for the clown. And then what was really kind of cool in movies was Shaft and Superfly. So um, I had a fedora hat. I had a fur collar, and I, in the very first drawings, I crisscrossed its finger for good luck. And that's where I said, that's going to be me. And then I drew it on a piece of paper, and I cut it out. I made my first stencil. It was wobbly, and I attached a, a bamboo stick from my neighbor's yard. I taped it at the top and the bottom of it. That way I could roll it up, and I went out tagging that of this particular image that becomes your identity, right? Yeah, uh, my the senior, was Senor that? Suerte. Senior Suerte. Or Mr. Lucky. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Lucky is what I called him. My very first tag in 1969, 
I was so nervous, I misspelled my name, <laughs> C-H-A-Z. <laughs> I, I forgot it, but C-H-Z, I forgot what I put on uh -huh. it. Uh, uh -huh. Because tagging is exciting. You get hooked on it. It's a lot of fun. It's addictive. It is very addictive. Yeah. I think what I keep going back to is that so much of graffiti and its history was about asserting identity, asserting community, asserting your place in the world. Not unlike a religion may use a central text to follow or organize itself around and define itself. It seems like a very powerful human instinct to need to express that way or establish, especially for a community that's oppressed and feels like it has no voice. What graffiti did for our community, it emboldened and it empowered the, the gangsters. But we love our gangsters because they protect us. We're not going to let whatever happened in 1943 happen again. I mean, it's dangerous, these men in prison and all that, but it's, it's sort of, it gives me said that gives me an identity that we are also powerful, but also we are also American. Graffiti makes me find my Americanism, define who I am. And I feel that also graffiti creates good citizenship. I feel graffiti, like art, people tell me, they go, what are you doing for the youth? And all that, the tagging out there, going to prison and all that stuff. I tell them, like, they should tag more. I go, because that way they practice their styles, get more involved, be more involved with their other friends, start reading the magazines, the videos, and they start seeing the art shows. They go, that's where they want to be. They get more involved getting, being more creative, designing T-shirts and a skateboard deck with their own hoodies. They don't want to do illegal stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. There's a career. I believe that graffiti engages you with other people, other cultures, especially now. I get invited to go all over the world on my terms, with my language, with my graffiti and all that. And somehow they get it too. They understand the languaging, you know. So in some ways, this graffiti is kind of like you say, it's bad, sorry from bad, but I always saw the sense of, I didn't look for the good in it. I saw the beauty, I saw the poetry, I saw my culture, uh, not Mexican culture. I'm not Mexican. I'm Mexican-American. I'm LA-centric. That's what I want to, to define myself in the streets. My name is Betty Avila. I'm the executive director of Self-Help Graphics and Art, and I grew up uh, in Cypress Park here in Los Angeles. The first time I came across Chaz's work in person would have been during an exhibition of Cheech Marin's private collection at LACMA, which took place in 2008. It was a really incredible overview of Chicano art up until that point. He's one of the largest collectors of Chicano art in the country. And when you walked into the exhibition, there was a, an archway or like columns that had been created by Chaz that almost looked like hieroglyphs on the columns. It was such a cool uh, way to experience his work for the first time. 
and I think actually really spoke to the way that you might have seen his work out in public. You know, we're, we're socialized to think about graffiti as negative and to see it as the mark of a bad neighborhood, the mark of gangs, and it's not disconnected. You know, of course, there's, there's a connection there, but to walk into a museum and see an aesthetic that was very much part of my upbringing and part of my neighborhood really elevated and put into a space that was really trying to respect it and to bring it forward as important. I mean, just incredibly culturally affirming. Artists like Chaz are really part of this really beautiful and important moment of Chicana and Chicano and Chicanx art history and culture. And he's coming out of LA, he's coming out of the east side, northeast side, and there's this whole movement that Chaz eventually finds and creates and becomes part of. And I think what's, what's so amazing about that is you still have so many of those artists alive today. So he's been part of the cultural and creative output of the Chicano and Chicana community here in LA. He's a student of Japanese calligraphy, and you see that in his work. It's it's totally evident, and that's the kind of that fusion of uh, the type of like placas or the roll call pieces that you would see on on a wall on the street um, alongside what is a very uh, disciplined artistic practice and study. That fusion is totally jazz. I think with Chaz, within the, the historical thread of graffiti, his style is so, it's West Coast Chicano. There's no question about that. He helped to frame that aesthetic here on, on the West Coast. What's great about Chaz is that he continues to be a student. And also, you know, he's, he's a bridge between a more, what I would say is a community-based um, practice into these institutional spaces that don't always know how to read or interpret that type of art. And Chaz is somebody who's been able to tap into both worlds and, and he's somebody that can bring more and more people into those, more artists into those institutional spaces. You know, one of the things that I became so interested in is there's all these different places that graffiti or the art form itself can show up. There's the concrete wall, but also you have pieces that are in the Smithsonian. You have your work that's on shoes, as you say, or t-shirts or skateboards, I guess. Can you talk to me about the difference in the way that the art form itself shows up in these different contexts and the difference it makes to the experience of it all? I believe art has to function. Art functions, if you're gonna do a painting, it better function, it better be a good painting. If you're gonna design a shoe, it better be a shoe first and then a good design. And then you have to make it fit. People have to want it. You have to make it precious. I tried to find the poetry for a better word, I tried to find the rhythm, rhymes, echoes in the in the words and the letters and, and these basically graffiti is an abstraction because most people can't read it. It's an insider 
language. So how do I make my work look proud, beautiful, poetic, everlasting, serious, and all that? By making it by making it powerful and strong. Okay, that that doesn't say much. Except I took these classes in a, a Pacific Asian Art Museum when I was when I was probably about um, I graduated from high school about sixty eight. So I was about 19 years old. And that teacher taught me, it was just a summertime class. And I was the only young man in a group of elderly women who were learning to write calligraphy for their thank you letters and gift cards and all that stuff. And here, I wanted to learn what script was about. This man taught me, he says, well, you know, Charlie says, take the line serious for one. Take yourself serious. Also use your body. You know, even if you're at a desk, you use your whole body by pulling and pushing and creating and making that line alive as though you're building it, creating it as though it's three-dimensional. Right, and you've metabolized that. I mean, I've watched some YouTubes and watched you work, and it's like you're dancing in a way. I mean, it's yeah. your your entire body is in the process of, of doing the work. It's, it's beautiful. Right, and you know, so I wanted to see... How do I take all that? When you're young, you're full of emotion <laughs> with no control. I went to a museum here in L.A., and they had just discovered the um, digging up some archaeological tablets from the city of Ur, from the Sumerian culture. I wanted to go see those writings, how they were formatted, because it was, it was so that the first writings of humanity, I go, I got to see that. So I went down there, and what did I see? Headline, a big script on top, and squirt clay tablets, flush left, flush right, indentations of sense of paragraphs, and at the very bottom, the king's seal or whoever was paying for it or how many, the owner of the four cows or whatever. I go, that's graffiti formatting. As I moved in my life, in my 30s, my day job was in the movie advertising where I did billboards and one-sheet posters and uh, magazine layouts, all for movies and all that. What did I find? Headline, body copy, logo, the same formatting, you know. Uh, carnation on the very top. Uh, all their information of why, why it's good for you. And then the logo at the bottom, who was paying for the ad. Fancy Feast Cat Food. I worked other agencies, Saatchi and Saatchi, Food Conan Belding, J. Walter Thompson, I worked for big advertising agencies and saw the same formatting as, as my graffiti. It helped validate what I was trying to do out there in the streets. I go, I'm doing the right thing. I know it now. I wanted to just circle back for a moment to what you were saying earlier about the fact that people can't read it. People don't understand what they're looking at. And wondered to what extent that's deliberate, meaning is this a secret language to a certain degree? Obviously, it's also to identify and to mark, but is it simultaneously a code, a secret language of some kind that only certain individuals will recognize and be under understand how to comprehend? True, that is. It's not secret that we're trying to keep it away from everybody, but is so much tradition into it. You have to be educated. You have to be. You have to know what these shapes originally come from, how they've morphed into contemporary letter shapes. Because, you know, 
I come from a certain type of typeface culture, like I said, old English, and then which also is in the tattoo culture. So I'm, my work is also huge in the tattoo culture. They use a lot of my letter shapes and all that. My letters have morphed into more of an Asian uh, spiritual kind of a, a lot more movement. I try to put a lot more uh, emotion into the letters. Uh, I started asking myself, if graffiti had a soul, what would it talk about? It would talk about, for one, its, it's position, its history, its place in history. Who are we? What do we have to say? Also, how do we relate to each other? The, the emotion part and all that. How, how do we protect each other? Where's our strengths? How our camaraderie? How do we how do we relate with that? And also is a sense of the future. Can we export this? Can we show this in galleries and all that? Are other people going to want to see this? Uh, I asked myself all those kind of questions. I said, can I do something with this graffiti? Because now I know the grammar, the languaging, the history. I spoke to all these old gangsters because I didn't want to be that fool who pretended to think I knew about all graffiti. A good friend of mine told me, Charlie, nobody's that hip. Nobody knows everything, which was brilliant <laughs> advice. But with the gangsters, I did not want to disrespect or put myself in a bad position. So I learned first. I did my painting first. I did my education first before I did that first painting 10 years later in 1980, you know. Uh, having said that, that painting is in the Smithsonian Institute in their permanent collection, you know, that first one. I, uh, I stumbled into the career, basically. Even though I did all the right things of going to art school, and then eventually, I didn't show until I was like 35 into a gallery. I, I didn't feel that I could even call myself an artist. You know, I, I felt that artists were the ones who could actually pay the rent, you know, with their artwork. And so it wasn't until I quit my day jobs until I was 35, I bailed on my day jobs. I said, if I'm ever going to be that painter, I got to do it before I hit 40. So I pulled back, just hit the studio for two years. I mean, you talk a lot about finding meaning in your work. And I've read, too, that your focus on the relationship of skill and discipline to the meaning that you find in your work and the quality of the art that you produce. And was it then, at that point in your life, where you really began to connect those pieces together? Well, I may, I'm not sure. That was maybe something that I learned from art school or because I'm old school. I always felt hand skills were the best things. I mean, I admired... Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, his drawings. I admired the drawing skills of these men. I always felt that a piece should be framed if you're going to show in a gallery. It should be finished. It shouldn't be just raw. So in some ways, I always tried to make sure my pieces were finished. My paintings have a story, which I learned a lot from my uh, working in advertising in movie studios and all that. I learned about stage lighting about presentation and all that, which I put in the compositions of my work. A lot of my paintings are bottom lit, like stage lights, lit from the bottom where all the letters are kind of shine like a, like um, like the Hollywood sign. Also, uh, 
I have dialogue in the painting. I have the main character. And I also have a conclusion. I try to have a conclusion in my paintings. The conclusion is, is when you feel that it's finished, it's complete. Which seemed to connect, I mean, it's a great way to answer the question, seemed to connect for this search for meaning that you, that you talk about so much. You know, I'm still searching. I wake up uh, early in the morning, make the cup of coffee, and I, and I get really nervous, start anxious, try to hit the studio. I feel now that I'm in my 70s, I feel it's a, it's a countdown now. And I feel I still haven't done my best work. I still feel that something's going to happen and I'm going to be left out. That I haven't finished that more, that important piece of work yet. You know, I'm still driven actually more than I ever have because now I know what I have to do. And I'm financially free. I have a big home, paid off, everything. I have all the freedom in the world to do my art right now, you know. So now I better do my job. I feel like I'm kind of starting all over, a new career, reborn, <laughs> you know. Well, that's interesting that you say it that way because my follow-up question, if this makes sense to you at all, is how your own identity is, is bound up with your work, with, with graffiti particularly. I mean, given the relationship of graffiti and identity, how, how much is this a process of you really connecting with yourself, understanding yourself, the dimensions of who you are? how your own identity kind of gets marked, if you will, by the work that you're doing. I didn't realize, so it's become everything of who I am. Everything that I say at home, even off time, everything that I do, all the emails that I get, I get a lot of emails every day with requests and all that. Uh, it's taken up all my life, probably for the last 30 years. 100%. It defines who I am. It makes the money that's paid off the house, buys the food, everything comes from my art skills, all comes from graffiti. And I get requests to uh, write a forward for this graffiti book in, in Germany, uh, a Japanese magazine, if I could write my story, uh, define um, the art in, in the contemporary uh, for an Australian magazine, um, go to Mexico City, speak in Spanish to large groups of people and all that stuff, you know, about my graffiti, how it ties in with tattoo, with Chicanoism, with the graffiti world, with uh, street art and all that. You know, I'm not Charlie anymore. I'm not Charles. That's my real name. That's in the past. I am Chaz. But it's sort of like, it's at times, it's a different person. I At home, I wash dishes, take out the trash. But in my studio, it's magic. It still happens every single day. It could be Christmas. If I'm in my studio, I'm so happy. You know, It's an addiction. It's a love. It's a relationship. I finally found my voice, my toolkit. And I just feel like I'm behind. I'm just running, running all the time, trying to catch up, trying to make that one beautiful painting. You could have a career of one painting if it's so beautiful. Not that beauty has to make a beautiful painting. They believe in it is what I'm trying to reach. If people believe in my work, I've made it.
Well, I'll tell you, Chaz, your work is incredibly beautiful. And hopefully through this podcast, our listeners will go and take a look and see those YouTube videos or get hold of your book or go to the Smithsonian and see your work too. I, I just have to say that I'm exceedingly grateful for you taking the time to do this. I've learned so much about reading and studying you, and it's a delight to meet you. And I'm again, I thank you. I appreciate very much your willingness to be here and to explore these issues with me. You're very kind, and I'm so proud. Believe me, I'm extremely proud to be here. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you very much. Change Lab is produced out of Art Center College of Design. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Luis Silva, editor Emily Van Bergen, and post-production supervisor and production consultant Christopher Olin. Thank you.